The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Uh, As we read from, if you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33 once again. Well, good morning. Phil, thank you. Thank you. Phil, uh, as always... I'm very privileged to, to have the opportunity to, to bring God's word this morning. All right. Well, before we do so, let's, um, let's go in prayer one more time, shall we? And Father, we have come to that uh, moment in time where your word is opened. And I pray, uh, Father God, that our hearts are as well. Um, for we all are sick with sin and we need um, the healing application of your truth uh, to cleanse and to renew and to make right. So I invite you, Holy Spirit, to please uh, be at liberty here um, with every soul present, that we would be very uh, moldable in your hands, that truth would be um, plainly seen and received and rejoiced in in the name of our Savior who has opened our eyes by coming, even as we've been singing coming and laying down his life to set us free. So set us free and uh, set us free to worship you this morning and the preaching of your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters. So the, the passage before us <clears throat> we are studying through today is, as we've shared, Genesis 33, which is really the continuation of what Nathan led us through last Sunday. When he and I spent time reading through and studying the passage together, we wrestled a bit with how to go through it. For chapter 32 and 33 are are really just one account broken up into three parts. And we weren't sure if, if we should just tackle the whole account in one setting, like that was an idea, covering both chapters together. Woof, like that's huge, but it was a thought. Um, Another thought was to preach through each of the three parts um, over the course of three separate Sunday worship service gatherings. Um, The account of the part of the, the part where Jacob is wrestling with God all night would be right in the middle, okay? Or the third one, which is what we're doing, to just take each chapter individually. Chapter 32 last Sunday and now 33 this Sunday, um, which, of course, is what we're doing. And I, and I say all this to begin our approach to chapter 33 with the whole account in mind, because I believe that's important. With the whole account in mind, for I, I believe that will help us move through it with clear direction. So let's start with, with an aerial view, Okay. Let's start with an aerial view. These, these two chapters together placed before, or placed before us the main take-home for today. These two chapters really just take the main take-home for today, and that is embracing your identity 
as a worshiper of God. Embracing your identity as a worshiper of God. In chapter 32, we see Jacob encounter what we all must encounter if we are to embrace our identity as a worshiper of God. And that is our fears. Our fears. And his is pretty clear here. When he fled his home and people in the land of Canaan 20 years ago, he fled because his brother Esau was determined on killing him. And now he finds himself returning to the same very place, and therefore the fear of his brother weighs heavily upon him, and for good reason. There has been nothing communicated to Jacob to assure him that his brother has changed plans to kill him. And so we see Jacob taking three steps of embracing his identity as a worshiper of God. And these aren't the three points. This is still intro, okay? Make that distinction. But in 32, we see three steps he takes. Number one, prayer. Prayer. He begins with prayer. There is recorded, as Nathan stated, a model prayer by one who's just pouring out his heart. It is a beautiful prayer, a model prayer. He's pouring out his heart. And and, and it, it opens with praise, praise and adoration as it should, as all prayers should. And then it moves to recounting God's faithfulness to him. And it ends with petitions to God on the basis of God's faithfulness to him that it wouldn't depart. Like, you've been faithful to me. Don't depart, but continue. Continue your, your faithfulness to me as I face the deadly threat of facing my brother Esau. Okay? And following his prayer, following the prayer then is, is preparations. He makes preparations. Jacob wisely makes preparations for this, for facing his fear. He has a thought-out plan, actively putting together efforts to essentially walk Micah 6.8 out. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, this is what God is speaking to us. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jacob makes great measures of preparations to rightly love his brother Esau with kindness and to do so in a very humble manner. And then, right before stepping forward in faith, and to meet his brother, right before stepping forward in faith, he obtains something that is of utmost importance when he faces his fear head on. And that is... The presence of God. The presence of God. The presence of God. When, when facing your fear head on, it is of utmost importance to have the presence of God with you. And Jacob wrestles all night for this, right? All night without fail. He's not going to let go. He wrestles all night till rest is found by God blessing him. Or in other words, assuring him that he, God, will be present and not break his promises to him as Jacob faces his fear head on. Again, this is intro. (laughs) So now this brings us to where we are today. With embracing your identity as a worshiper of God. And our first point leading up to that, embracing our identity as a worshiper of God, leading up to that reaching its consummation, Our first point is 
obedience to God's call on your life. Obedience to God's call on your, on your life. Found in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 33. Obedience to God's call on your life. In other words, doing that which God tells him to do. Jacob could have gone all the way up to this point, like the morning of, he's going to meet his brother, up to this point in this process of embracing his identity as a worshiper of God, to then at the sight of Esau and the 400 men who are with him, as verse 1 through 2 tells us, to at that point turn and just go a different direction altogether. What direction? We don't know. But one thing for sure, not in the direction of his fear, not in the direction of Esau. Jacob could have, he could have just changed course, veered, you know, by any and all means, fled from his brother Esau. There's nothing that's been communicated to him. He sees 400 men. He's got sheep and camp behind him. Okay? Heavy fear. He could have fled. He could have split as best as he could. He could have fled from his fear. And this is no doubt a temptation we have, correct? To flee your fear. God is calling you to do this or that. And commonly, what accompanies with it, what accompanies it, of course, being a fear, is difficulty. Like, there's a reason you don't want to. There's difficulty. Difficulty to varying degrees that we would rather not have in existence. But this doesn't change God's calling on your life. It remains, and so does the necessity of your obedience to it. If you are to embrace your identity as a worshiper of God. What does Jesus say about following him in Luke 9.62? says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Like Jacob here. We are not to look back, or, or well, I guess Jacob didn't flee, but we're not to look back, we're not, we're to, but instead just remain obedient to God's call on our lives if we are to embrace our identity as a worshiper of God. Jacob remains obedient to God's call on his life and faithful to walk, walk it out in doing so, walk out Micah 6, 8 in doing so. As we, prog- as we progress on here to our second point, he puts in place, remember everything in chapter 32? He puts in place those, those preparations rightly to love his brother Esau with kindness and to do so in a humble manner. And look at verse 3. Look at verse 3, describing Jacob who places himself ahead of all that is his as he faces his fear head on, which is our second point. Facing that fear head on. Preparations have been made, prayer, he faces it faces his fear head on. Verse 3, he himself, that would be Jacob, he went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And it's, it's got to start there, right? When facing our fear head on, it's got to start there to, to do it with this humble courage. He's bowing, but he's still going forward. Jacob isn't at the very back of all his family, of all the camps, but rather he is right in front, ahead of them all. There is a humble courage at play here and a beautiful example to us when facing our fears head on. Support is fantastic, 
right? To get that support is fantastic, if not needful, in living this out successfully. But in the end, in the end, you must be in the lead. You got to be in the lead. You got to, you, you know, I got to take those steps forward in faith with a heart of courage. Which is not a self-confidence, but instead a confidence in God that he is present with you. Present with you to do what chapter 32 worked out for us, right? God is present. He gives us humble courage to press on because you know he is near. And it won't come from your own making. It stems from God as the source. When this is the case, you can say with the psalmist, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. With that posture and assurance of God's presence, you, by by virtue of it, will have an abiding, humble courage to face your fears head on. So that question begs to be asked. Are there any fears before you right now that you have yet to face head on? I believe all of us searching would have perhaps one or two. For our well-being, you know, if those exist or when they do, I don't presume that everyone has them necessarily right now, but when they do in life, confide. (laughs) Confide with a trusted soul. Like, start there. That's a step. Make that known. What it is that you may begin more steps forward, leading with that humble courage God provides to face it head on. For God so often brings his help, right? His help through one another if we give him the opportunity to do so. But you gotta confide. You gotta open that up. What, what accompanies humble courage? What accompanies humble courage? As we, as we trek through the rest of our second point, seen in verses 3 through 11. That's all of second point. 3 through through verse 11, what accompanies this humble courage? Immediately, Jacob is met with the grace of God. He is immediately met with the grace of God, right? In verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and wept. And they wept. I mean, like, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Anyone hearing this story for the first time might likely be on the edge of their seat anticipating the potential for a a roaring conflict or just slaughter, right? Esau sent his former man slaughtering Jacob and, and, and the two camps with him. But this is not the case. This is not the case. One of the one of the last things we hear of Esau in chapter 27 is that he was hell bent on killing Jacob. There's no question there. When mourning with my father is done, I'm going to kill him. 20 years go by. There's no interaction between them. Jacob certainly is not expecting kindness from his brother. I think the scriptures reveal that. 
And so because of that, it makes these wise efforts to appease his brother's wrath prior to actually seeing him by way of abundant gifts that came in three spaced out droves. Do you remember that from verse, or verse from chapter 32? These three spaced out droves with gifts carrying along them the message to the obvious question when Esau, when Esau, when Esau meets them, that he would ask, like, to whom do you belong? And where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Like all this, what, what's, what is going, what is this for? What's, what's going on? The repeated answer, the repeated answer as instructed by Jacob to be spoken by each of the three droves, three waves of this, same answer to that same question that Esau would ask. Answer being, they belong to your, Esau, your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord, Esau. And moreover, he, Jacob, is behind us. Right? That was the answer over and over and over. And in all likelihood, a help in the outcome here, we got to acknowledge that. It would probably, or I, I believe it to be a help, but not to be given credit to the most unexpected sweet exchange between these two estranged, once hostile, two of one another brothers. Esau runs to meet him runs to me and embraces him, not even saying words yet, but just embraces him wholeheartedly, fell on his neck, weeping. And I'm imagining the moment tears respond, both of joy and relief from Jacob, right? He was afraid of being killed. Jacob, in obedience to God's call in his life, he takes steps of faith to face his fear head on with humble courage and is immediately met with the grace of God. And how fitting is that, right? How fitting is that? We are not to presume upon God's grace, but we can rest in knowing he will supply it to the measure we need within every step of faith taken. He does so with Jacob here, and he'll do so with you. He'll do so with me. What follows is a gentle resolve to outdo his brother in showing honor by remaining steadfast and walking out, Micah 6, 8, I just see that as a track that Jacob continues on. And he, he does so, this gentle resolve to outdo his brother in showing honor. From verses 5 through 11, generosity, kindness, gratitude, and humility just, just saturate the text. Let's, let's simply read them. Read it again with, with a listening ear. Verses 5 through 11. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph And Rachel drew near, and they, guess what? Bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company? 
that I met, Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Saturated. Just thankfulness, kindness, gratitude, generosity, just insisting on it all the way through. I mean, what a happening. Brothers united once again by the hand of God. What follows may not be what you expect. (laughs) What follows may not be what you expect. It's what Esau expects. It's what Esau expects, but the outcome is different. Verses 12 through 20 bring us to our closing point in Jacob embracing his identity as a worshiper of God. And that third and closing point is making a distinction in this life. Making a distinction in this life. Verse, verse 12 starts, off, starts us off with what you would expect. Right? Like Esau, is, he's, he's ready to travel home together with Jacob to where they lived before and dwell in the area as brothers. Verse 12, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. Now, what I want to give attention to in this very sincere and kind invitation from brother to brother is first off, what already was spoken to. That Esau says, let us journey on our way. Like our way, like we're together now. As in, we're together once again. And let's, let's go and dwell on the land where we grew up. Okay? But notice, but notice how Esau closes that invitation. And I will go ahead of you. Which which is not wrong to consider it as, a, as an escort by Esau and the 400 men with him as a family courtesy in providing protection and support during travel. But doesn't it also give way to Jacob yet again coming under the banner of someone else? It's been 20 years since Jacob has been home. In many ways, he is a stranger in the land. His twin brother Esau, on the other hand, is well established in the region, has multiple connections and and resources available to him by sheer fact that he has lived there his whole life. This would all be a help to Jacob, being newly returned to the area that he left with just a staff in his hand is how he left but now has become two camps, having great possessions, droves of herd animals, along with male and female servants. You know, entering, entering alongside his, his now reconciled brother would have served helpful, I believe. But it would also put Jacob in a familiar place. For he has always been under the, the care or oversight of someone else. 
First, it was under the tender care of his mother, right? Then it was the strong arm of his uncle Laban. What is next for Jacob? To be that distant brother of Esau's who's now back in town with the help of his brother? Jacob is not on the same page. He is not on the same page. In obedience to God's call on his life, taking steps of faith to face his fear head on, Jacob knows it is time for him to make a distinction in his life of who he has now become. And in step with walking out Micah 6, 8 and verses 13 through 15, Jacob politely declines the offers with an element of question as to whether he is being completely forthright. For he states quite clearly in verse 14, after giving legitimate concern over the care of his livestock and children in regards to the pace of travel, which, which just a side note, it's just a beautiful shepherd note. If you read that through there, like their pace, what does it say? If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. There's a lot that comes through there with a the shepherd's heart. Not driving the sheep hard. Like, whatever it takes that, that they're care for, and they won't die. So, so he says this in his response to Esau. Let my Lord pass ahead of me, ahead of his servant. He's still holding that humble posture. Ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me. And at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. And I repeat, until I, Jacob, come to my Lord, that would be Esau, until I come to my Lord and seer. Sounds like a good and honest plan. But listen, but then listen to verses 16 and 17. So Esau returned that day on his way to seer. Verse 17, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. Now, hold on a minute. Seir and Succoth are in opposite directions on the map, okay, from where they were. And Jacob didn't pitch a tent but rather built houses and booths for his livestock, like permanent structures, not temporary ones. And I don't want to make much of this. Perhaps he intended to do as he spoke to Esau and then abruptly changed his mind shortly, shortly thereafter. That's a possibility. Maybe he wasn't being honest. Like, Jacob is a new man, very clear, as we've seen the grace of God progressing in his life, transforming, it, transforming him, but he is still Jacob, who bears a long history of deceit. A lot of that garbage is out of his life, but not all of it. He is still a work in progress, like the rest of us. 
the important distinction to make is that Jacob is making a distinction of who he is. Do you remember in chapter 32, chapter 32, it was just the night before, just the night before God, just the night before God gave him, gave Jacob a new name, Israel. Genesis 32, 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God gives him a new name, a new identity. Israel here, obedient to God's call on his life, taking steps of faith to face his fear head on, is determined to make his distinction in this life. To no longer be under the rule of any man, but under the rule of God alone. He's clearly submissive, holding that posture where it's right, right? But who he is, who his identity lies, is no longer his mom's son or Laban's nephew, but he is under God. He makes that distinction. Israel, fully embracing his identity as a worshiper of God, goes the opposite direction of the care and protection he could have received from his brother Esau. To seek out of his own, to seek out his own, to seek out land of his own, to live by faith this new identity he has been given. Under God's care and rule, and rule, verse eighteen, God safely brings Israel from Sukkoth, where He's built those permanent structures. He safely brings him from there to Shechem which is in the land of Canaan, the, the, the promised land. He's in the, land, the, the promised land, the land of Canaan, and he camps before this city, camps before the city of Shechem. The camp ultimately being the place at which he is able to purchase from the people who dwelt there that land. He purchased it, which is showing further progress of God's promise to Abraham that God would give them this land. Like, that's the promise from the beginning, that God would give them this land. Abraham, he made that first purchase of property in the promised land to acquire the cave to bury his wife, right? That was the first possession taken. They were foreigners. And here, more of the promised land is taken ownership of by God's people, according to his promise made that they would. So he's purchased this land. He's back in there. He's, he's on his own. So how does Jacob, how does, we should say now, Israel, right? How does Israel consummate the embracing of this new identity as a worshiper of God here in the closing verse of chapter 33, verse 20? What does it say? It says, there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Translation, God, the God of Israel. Israel steps up, or excuse me, Israel sets up a place of worship to his God. Just unapologetically identified, identifies himself, or God rather, as the God of Israel, my God. 
this new place, no question, anyone here, this is who I worship. This is who my God is. The God of his father is before him. The fear of his father Isaac, as he stated a couple chapters prior. The God who has confirmed his covenant with him time and time again. The God he wrestled with. Israel makes clear here his distinction as being a new face in this homeland of his that he has been away from for 20 20 years, he makes this clear distinction that he is fully embracing his identity as a worshiper of God, the God of Israel. Make no mistake about it. This is who I worship. This is who I follow. And so a question for all of us is being a worshiper of God, the identity you embrace? Is that the identity, identity you embrace? We all, we by default embrace identities of our own making. I mean, that is such a commonality amongst us. Sometimes knowingly, but other times, oftentimes unknowingly. Meaning, we say our identity is in Christ, that we are a child of God, a true worshiper of God, yet our lives declare otherwise so often at times. Our lives speak volumes otherwise. And sadly, this is a truth we all face daily. For we, we, we live out roles in our daily living that compete for our, for our identity constantly. Just, we have roles, we have functions in home, in public, even in the church, and they compete for that identity. Our craft, like the skill God has given you, that can become your identity. Our possessions, just things we possess. Our positions, things we've accomplished and where we're at, even in the public or even in the church. Type of recreation competes for it. We see that just heavily in where we live. We're in the recreation capital. Our bank account balance competes for it. The, our home, what it looks like, where it's located. Even just our own physical looks can be our identity. Or, or, or our health. How strong we can run or how many, how much, what we can lift or just whatever. Just being in shape. Those are all great things, but they are identities that compete with what our true identity belongs. Accomplishments, even our intellect can be an identity. Just the gift of having such a brilliant mind can be your identity. Our own family, spouses and children alike can compete or do compete with our identity. These and many more are false gods. This is really what they are, false gods. They're not bad or evil in and of themselves, but false gods that compete with where our true identity belongs as a Christian if you bear that name. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. That's our identity. 
Embracing your identity as a worshiper of God means, means that the reality of this, reality of it just works itself out in every facet of your life. Even it works itself out in even the, all the false gods that compete for it, right? In those areas, that works itself in them. They are not what define you, but they, they rather become means to express it to the fullest measure you are able that you are a worshiper of God, ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And because so, because so in humble obedience, humble glad obedience, let's, let's conduct ourselves with fear, Throughout the time of our exile, as Peter says, throughout our days here on earth, till we are called home in heaven. Would you pray with me once more? And Father, we, I believe, can identify with how our flesh opposes that. <laughs> we desire it, we long for it, we pursue it, we seek your your, your help, your provision through your word and your spirit, that it would come, that it would be present, but our flesh is way, way, yeah, waging war against it, and not lightly. Nor does it ever relent, but it is a daily battle. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, as, as we are individuals, we are one body, knitted and joined together, but we are individuals, and you know our makeup. You have given us our makeup. You know where the struggles exist. You know what competes the most, or just even just what competes altogether. And, and I pray you would help us see that, that you'd open our eyes to it, that we would be broken about it, that we would confess it, that we would welcome your grace to, to help us live out the identity, the, the humility of Christ, to express it in every facet of our lives. God, we belong to you. We don't want to represent anything else. Father, we thank you so much that you're always near. You're a constant, um, ever-present help in a time of need. And Father, help us not push you away or at least close you out. Not that we can have power over you, but, but we can have deaf ears and hard hearts. And we don't want that. So I pray, Father, that your word um, would have full effect in every listening ear present. I pray that attention has been um, fully given to you, that there's a, a stirring of affection, of love for you that responds in glad obedience with a heart of faith desiring to always please you. And without faith, it's impossible to please you. Show us what faith looks like. 
show me, show each and every person present what that looks like right now. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.